0: the moment to change your lane I came home from the wasteland
1: Heroic and triumphant like a comic book girl Created out of nothing like a comic book girl
2: Hey! Hey everybody Hey Brad,
3: hey. how are you? Welcome back Hello, everyone Oh, who's this? Who's, who's this new voice we're hearing today?
2: Hi there, I'm Parker Renevier and I'm so caffeinated I can see God. Wow.
3: Good for <laughs> so you. So few of us can. Happy I am so too. excited
2: to be joining this particular audio phenomenon, this whole experience for our professor. Uh, because boy howdy do I have a lot of feelings about uh, like the Knothlet condition and Tobias in general. Uh Anyway.
3: It seems we all have a lot of feelings about Tobias.
1: Yeah, this is a very pro-Tobias discussion group thus far. In this house, we love and support Tobias. Mostly. We love and support our bird boy.
0: Maiming people is not okay.
1: Before we get too much farther, um, Professor Leone asked if we could just all say our names and our pronouns at the beginning, because apparently he can't tell the difference between our voices.
3: Well, my name's Ersa Wren and I use she-her pronouns.
1: My name is Brad, and I use he-they pronouns. Um, I'm Cassandra, I use she-her uh, she, pronouns.
2: I'm Parker, I use she-her. Excellent.
0: Hi, Parker. Welcome to the discussion.
2: Thank you. It is difficult for me to avoid because Brad and I are quarantined together, and it's uh, been great.
0: Good for you.
3: Oh, social distance! Though.
2: Like, unironically, great. I know I made that sound really sarcastic, but I'm actually really right <laughs> yeah, enjoying okay. myself.
0: I don't think you sounded
2: sarcastic. The caffeine is making it difficult to uh, tell between any modes of human expression. I'm so excited to be here, guys. Shall we get into the encounter?
1: Uh, yeah. Shout out, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The
0: encounter. Love to encounter things.
1: Yeah, I loved this book. So much I got to the end of it and I was like oh dang I like these? I might like these unironically.
3: <laughs> I very much unironically like them and will never shut up about them. Let's go over just give a an an overview, a summary of the um the book. So who wants to take it away?
2: There is a red tailed hawk outside my window right now.
1: Nice. Brad, come get this.
3: It's Tobias.
1: It's gotta be Tobias.
3: It is him. It's
1: definitely not Tobias.
2: The winged Avenger has graced our recording with his presence, and we are here to pay homage to this uh,
1: to this beautiful bird. Wow. wow.
0: Uh, anyway, Brad, if you
1: really like this book, maybe you want to do the summary this time? Absolutely. Yeah. So we... Start off with Tobias and Rachel rescuing a female hawk. And then they come back and have an Animorphs meeting. And Marco's mad about it, obviously. So Tobias notices that there is a a huge cloaked spaceship going to the mountains and then back and going back and forth. So the Animorphs decide they're going to check this out. They become wolves. They go check it out. They realize that the giant spaceship is actually a truck um, taking water out of this lake to bring back up into orbit um, so they decide they need to do something about that they come up with a plan to go up to the mountains and turn into fish swim into the, the truck up the um, up the straw basically and then disable the ship's cloaking device from the inside that's their plan Um, Before they execute this plan, uh, Tobias is feeling good and he lets the hawk mind take over and he kills and eats some kind of rodent. And he is so freaked out by this that he kind of dissociates, just goes totally hawk and lives as a hawk for a week and everyone's worried about him. But then he talks to Rachel. He's fine. They go try to execute the plan. They try to become fish. Um, and it almost sort of works. They go into the spaceship. Eventually they are able to crash the spaceship. Um, and then they all get away as birds.
3: Yeah, I just want to say that I am so glad for the fate of, like, humanity, that Cassie's barn had so many animals in it at (laughs) any given point in time.
2: And that her mother worked at the zoo, yeah. Yeah, Like... (laughs) A, f- a very, very good selection of people to just be cutting through a construction site late at night on their way back from the mall.
0: <laughs> yeah, interesting how that worked out, isn't it?
1: Indeed. <laughs> Parker, uh, Cassandra's a bit of a conspiracy theorist. I'm not a conspiracy um, theorist.
2: No, you and I are going to have a good time because I have some conspiracy, th- conspiracy theories of my
1: own. I have exactly one conspiracy theory, and it is that Marco's mom didn't drown. She is alive. Well, I mean, she's probably not still alive, but she was alive when they thought she was dead. That's so interesting.
0: That's a very interesting theory.
1: Yeah. Interesting theory indeed. They never find her, or they say in the books that they never find her body.
3: Yeah, she does mysteriously disappear, so I guess we'll have to see what exactly that means. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, Tobias's development here is, is fascinating. We all sort of have our own thing to contend with personally and his thing to contend with is like a hawk that like he has to deal with like literally a hawk brain all the time so being a predator and being motivated by fear and like the like physicality of like the hawk body and like the amygdala of like the hawk brain like that must be that's such an interesting thing that the animorphs have to deal with when they morph something for the first time but Tobias has to deal with it like all the time now basically so that just makes that makes his whole arc so interesting to me
2: Tobias even at like 13 years old has this sense of self-awareness that i think is pretty impressive uh yeah and sort of like he he recognizes another component of his internal struggle which is his addictive personality um like, he, he the, like one of the reasons that I, I noticed that he's so afraid of sort of, like, being in a hawk form and, like, specifically eating hawk food and, like, you know, eating the stuff that hawks eat, uh, partially it's a sort of, like, I don't know, it's kind of like he doesn't want to be judged by his friends, but also because he doesn't believe he'll ever be able to stop once he starts, um, which is also something that he mentions uh, he sort of, like, uses as an excuse to avoid self-pity. It's the same sort of rationale. He doesn't, be able, he doesn't believe he'll be able to stop once he starts. Um, so he's also got that sort of... That he's contending with. Uh, that he's aware of. Um, and it sends him into a really interesting set of spirals about his sort of like the denial of his physical nature uh, and also his role in the group.
1: Yeah. Can we talk about gayness? Yes. like, Because, I mean, it's woven throughout... So so we mentioned at the beginning they free this hawk um, and it's a female hawk it is a red-tailed hawk and there's a moment where once she's free Tobias looks at her and she's not human inside she's just a hawk but he feels like he should go with her and it's kind of it's not explicitly like a sexual thing it's an animal thing but it is his feelings and his feelings about uh eating like his urges to eat rats and rodents and stuff and live prey also all of the way that it's written about with the self-disgust and the shame um feels a lot like a lot of narratives about young people who realize they're gay um And once you get that self-awareness of what that means, like, not just that you are having these urges that you don't understand, but that, oh, you shouldn't like boys. Like, you're a boy, you shouldn't like boys. And there's kind of mixed metaphors, because there's also a lot of body dysmorphia that Tobias goes through that's sort of similar to trans experiences, that don't it, it doesn't necessarily line up into one like Tobias is representing this but um he sort of the his it's not a perfect um one to one for any experience but there's a lot of aspects of the, of his experience that are very similar to being gay at 13 and very similar to being trans at 13 just as an anamorph i mean it's just a whole It's a whole separate, being an animorph is a whole separate thing. It's not like being trans, but it's got a lot of feelings. It it serves as a proxy
3: for people who want to see themselves in the narrative of the book through a personal narrative, I think.
2: I mean, goodness knows I wanted to morph before I knew I was trans. Like, I I need that. (laughs) Like in deep in my bones of like I want that like and then I was like oh geez oh whoa (laughs) gender (laughs) but yeah no morphing was definitely the first sort of conduit for that idea that you could be more or that you could be different and that that would be like okay and even maybe powerful
3: yeah totally I I think you know the the constraint of the like two hours thing and the way that they have to hide this from other people like that constraint is is so powerful and it makes it, like, it just, it feels like such a good comparison to how people feel like they need to, like, hide aspects of themselves from other people or else, like, something bad's going to happen. Although, I I must say that, um, like, the the two-hour limit, if you wanted to change what you looked like and you wanted to morph into another human, then the two-hour limit would not be a problem, necessarily. Um, but... If you really want to be, like, a seal, (laughs) you can't do that all the time.
0: What I was just going to say is also, I think from a very literal perspective, like, it feels kind of weird to speculate about this stuff about historical figures, but also I would not be surprised at all if historically Tobias, the person, was actually trans. I, you know, it's not like... Maybe the number one explanation, but if someone was like, "Yeah, there's definitive proof that Tobias was trans, I'd be like, that makes sense
2: I feel like it's one of those situations where these the the events here happened so long ago. I feel like it might be a it might be a terminology update situation wherein like the words that we have now don't necessarily reflect the experiences of people back in the day true, um like they might have sort of identities that don't sort of neatly slot into the ones that we've that have become prevalent." Um, since, uh, um, but yeah, there's, there's something, there's something going on there
1: probably. Yeah. Um, and in his first sort of one-on-one with Rachel, he's, he has a lot of one-on-ones with Rachel in this (laughs) book. Um, and his first one after they complete their rescue, um, they all go to someone's house, Jake's house and reconvene. And Tobias is noticing how other people are treating him differently. Um, and thinks that they are pitying him and that he's lost something. Um, Rachel's sad eyes seemed to follow me. I hated the way they all felt sorry for me. All, all they could see was that I was not what I used to be. All they saw was that I had no home. Um, they they didn't really understand. I hadn't had a real home since my parents died. I was used to being alone. And I had the sky.
2: You could write a whole thesis about Tobias' relationship with the concept of pity. And, like, mm. self-pity.
1: Yeah. But I feel like what I want to focus on is that And I Had the Sky, he talks about shame and his dysmorphia, but he also talks about the joys of his body changing and, like, that he thinks he gets to experience that he could have never experienced if he was still able to be hu- to have a human body. Yeah. So I feel like that's really important that that's that he did keep going back to that and remembering that because like being gay and trans are not just tragic. They're also great. Yeah, definitely.
3: Absolutely. Part of it is like some things that you can't choose to change, which sort of have to happen, like growing up something you not you don't choose to do. Um, but like, I don't, I don't want to say like destiny or something, but like, there's definitely something about Tobias' story that makes it feel sort of inevitable with like regards to, we talked about this a little bit before, but his like self-destructive nature sort of, um, and part of the reason he makes this mistake is because he knows like there is the upside of, you know, oh my gosh, he can fly all the time now. So, that's exciting, <laughs> and he knows that there's like upsides on some level. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I would, I would probably have done that too.
2: <laughs> um, hey, minor question: Did people just not know about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act back in the day? Because this is the second book where we've seen just, like, people being like, I'm going to murder this bird.
0: <laughs> bird murder or birder.
2: I'm, in, in the first book, it was like, I'm going to shoot this bird with a gun in this, in this upcoming <laughs> one. The guy almost kills him with a wrench. You're not allowed to do that. You're still not allowed to do that. You're especially not allowed to do that now. But, like, was the migratory... It Like, some variation on the Migratory Bird Treaty Act has existed for ages and ages and ages well before this period of time.
0: Um, um, wait, I I looked it up. I looked it up. It's actually from
2: 1918. That's crazy! That's so long ago. That's so long ago. In conclusion, nobody knew about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. I think they're all just jerks. Jerks?
0: Jerks. No. (laughs)
2: Jerks?
0: (laughs) I mean, some of them might be. But I think mostly they're just not nice people who... Don't value the life of
1: animals. Um, speaking of birds and birds dying, um, can we talk about that bird strike um, that happened? So the the next thing that sort of happens is um, he's flying and he sees a flock of geese, and they just get pummeled. They just eat it by by nothing. Nothing mm-hmm. is in the air, but uh. <laughs> bird strike i don't i just think it's funny that airplanes can get taken down or airplanes used to be able to get taken down by birds and they called it bird strike the birds are picketing
0: the birds have unionized
2: (laughs) they have thrown their bodies on the gears and on the wheels and on the spaceships
1: of production
2: the spaceship will not be permitted to function
0: (laughs) So if Tobias is, like, flying near them, is Tobias a scab? Is he crossing a bird picket line?
3: Oh my god.
2: (laughs) I... The, I mean, well, I think if anything, Tobias is the, uh, the enlightened moderate who is willing to allow the machine to continue moving along its deadly course until he sees uh, atrocity committed, until he sees lives being lost in the machine. And then he realizes that the smokescreen that the machine has put up is no longer functional uh-huh. and that the system uh, will destroy uh lives in order to get what it wants, and then that is what compels him to act. He is the enlightened moderate who is only uh woken up by the bloodshed of innocence. Um, that's very
0: specific Parker. <laughs>
2: no, that's that's good. <laughs> I also have questions about the Yerk truck in general, like the, the whole concept of it. So so the, the theory that uh, that our heroes have is that the Yerk truck is here at this mountainside lake to siphon air and water off uh, and then return back to their mothership with it? Is that the sort of like, is that the presumption that they create about this particular vessel?
0: I think so. I've never been totally clear.
2: So I'm confused because how in the world, if that is the case, if that's what this vessel is for, how in the world did the Yurk mothership get to Earth? I don't know how far away the Yurk planet is, or was, but, like, if if they needed trucks to take things from atmosphere to keep a constant supply, like, if the Yurks really can't generate their own atmosphere and water, like, how in the world did they cross space in order to get to us? Like, did they have to take pit
1: stops along other planets? So my theory presupposes that they are not taking those trucks back to the mothership to use, that taking the water and the air is, in fact, part of their colonial project. Mm. Oh. Because they assume that this is a weakness. I think there's a lot of things that the kids assume are weaknesses um, that I, with, given the information that they had, not necessarily true because what does colonialism do you come to a planet you strip it of its resources and maybe the yerk planet itself doesn't have enough water but if they've got colonies all over then there's enough plenty of water on the mothership cuz they've got more water than they can than they c- can use but it's used for whatever the yerks have for an economy or just for their own propagation
3: their colonialism happens not only of the, in the traditional ways, um, but also it, like, the co- people, they colonize, colonialize individuals. Like, colonialism steals, it, it inserts the language of the colonizers into the, into and over the cultures and languages of, um, the people that it's colonizing, but, um, this sort of happens on, like, micro level many many times literally by just like yurks entering into people's bodies and um, assimilating them
2: yeah that tracks I I have a couple of other points but I definitely want to reserve a little bit of time for uh, Marco's performative masculinity corner
0: yes
3: i would love i would love to talk about that
0: (laughs) Parker. it's so funny that you mentioned that because um i think i made some comment about that last class discussion before we actually started recording when i was saying like oh i read ahead and i read book three and i have a lot of feelings about marco's performative masculinity so Mm -hmm. i'm so glad you brought that up parker
2: it's all, all in a day's work, Cassandra. Yeah, uh, Marco performs. <laughs> my my notes say Marco's performative masculinity strikes again. <laughs> And I think that's particularly interesting considering uh, a queer reading of Tobias and sort of Tobias's take on the whole thing, which is like, I think, relatively minimal. Um, but at the beginning, uh, Tobias uh, writes, Marco and I will probably never be very close. And my my notes say, how did that go for you? Because I, I don't <laughs> actually really know the personal narratives here and I don't know how close they become. But uh, Tobias also definitely says, I-, I guess girls are attracted to him based on how beautiful he is.
1: <laughs> um, oh yeah, I remember that.
3: Wait, does he say uh, that? Oh my gosh. Basically. I
2: mean, he doesn't say beautiful. I um he he doesn't use that specific word. But uh, he ta-
1: he says something about his hair. It's he doesn't use that specific word, but he uses some words. Yeah, he's like, girls think that Marco is cute because he, like, has nice hair or something like that. And I think he does say, I guess, like, at the end of the sentence, which is a very (laughs) Lady Doth protest too much. Yeah. Like, I I, I, I guess he's cute. Shall I read the paragraph? Oh, you have it. Yes, please. Go for it. Marco and I will probably never
2: be very close. He's a typical smart aleck kind of guy. Always confident. Always has some funny or sarcastic thing to say. He's short, or at least he's not very tall. I guess girls think he think he's cute because he has that long brown hair and dark eyes.
1: Hmm.
2: Yeah.
3: Fascinating. Oh my goodness.
1: Straight <laughs> men don't necessarily talk about other straight men's beautiful <laughs> eyes. I'm not sure I've ever met a straight man.
3: Talk to me more about Marco's long, beautiful hair, Tobias. <laughs>
0: I mean, I I definitely think that as a kid, I did kind of picture Marco as the hot one, you know, like when that was age appropriate and not weird.
3: That's so interesting. I, I did not interpret him that way growing up.
0: I think partially because my taste has always run towards like slightly more androgynous people regardless of gender. So having the narration be like, Marco is small and has long hair. 13 year old Cassandra was like... Hmm, tell me more.
3: <laughs> Fascinating.
0: I also had a crush on Tobias
1: as a kid as well, so didn't we all? Yeah. Didn't
2: we all? I guess one other point I want to make is I wish I had taken notes about the moments in this uh in this particular journal where uh Marco tells a joke that goes badly like where he oversteps his boundary i think he does it i think twice or maybe three times
0: uh towards the end of chapter five it's not really a joke but marco yells at rachel and says you're not doing this for good reasons you're doing it because you get off on the danger um and then like the next sentence of narration is marco realized he'd gone too far
2: yes that was one of those moments
3: he also does stuff like that all the time. he feels like i think he feels like he sees things much more clearly than everyone else hmm. for whatever reason that might be
2: that could be and then he sort of, but he has to sort of couch everything in humor or irony uh because again Marco's performative masculinity corner
3: uh- um,
2: <laughs> it's uh i don't know it's this this book begins uh. What I'm sure will become a very interesting character study of Marco throughout. Uh, oh our, yeah, throughout our uh, our exploration into these journals. Um, sorry, I just wanted to.
1: No, yeah, sort of it's wax all wax
2: upon that for a moment.
1: It's all great stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, it's like I, I, you're you're so, you're really smart. I love I love you. Oh, you <laughs> Gross. I, I, <laughs> um, We're I gay. Get over it.
0: <laughs> Um, I do just think that regardless of how exactly you choose to read Marco or how exactly you think the historical narratives uh, sort of make you think about Marco in terms of, like, gender and sexuality, I just get such a strong vibe from Marco of, like, this is how you do masculinity, right? I'm trying to do masculinity normally because my actual internal expression of masculinity is somehow not normative and I need to cover for it. Whether that's, like, a gender thing, a sexuality thing, both. I don't know.
3: Yeah, based on what I know, that's, in addition to being, like, a queer narrative, I think that's also a narrative that a lot of cis straight men actually feel pressure about as well, but, like, aren't as conscious about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because so much of gender is formative, and especially it feels there's, like, a, a pressure to be something where there's a pressure to fit in a, a box all the time i think in addition to just feeling this way growing up there's also the pressure of masculinity to not be so many specific things and also to like take responsibility and like that he has like that extra pressure because of his home life
1: yeah can we talk about home life for just real quick mm-hmm. um because we talked about How, last time, how Marco and Tobias both have really messed up home lives. Um, Where's anybody's parents? Okay,
3: don't exist.
1: (laughs) Do you, this is my, my, I think that the breakdown of the American nuclear family, this isn't my actual opinion, the breakdown of the American (laughs) nuclear family is what allowed the Animorphs to exist because if their moms weren't working, then they would have been home and then they wouldn't have been able to keep it a secret and then our society would. Uh, Oh, maybe this is my opinion. The breakdown of the American (laughs) nuclear family was good. Um, Agreed, and and also it's interesting
3: (laughs) that this is a thing that might not have happened, or might have happened in a very different way. If you know those specific cultural uh, changes hadn't happened within that time period,
2: these take place in the early 1990s, if I'm remembering correctly, which is like early or maybe mid. I'm not sure.
3: Mid 1990s.
2: All right. So shortly after the sort of decline of, like, the stoop kid as like a, or like the latchkey kid as mm. like a, as like a parenting method, um, I think. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was a, a a decade or two before was like the sort of prominent, like, heyday of kids mm. just sort of being left to their own devices uh, when their parents were working. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think there's also something interesting to be said about class as it relates to mm-hmm. uh, parenting here. Um, I think Rachel's parents' professions are mentioned in either book one or book two, so I think we know what they do.
3: Rachel's mom is a lawyer, I believe.
2: Yes, Rachel's mom is a lawyer, and her dad is on uh, the uh, weather channel, right?
3: Oh yeah, I think, that's I think her dad's maybe? a weather
2: reporter.
0: Um, yes, Ra-
3: Rachel was the most financially supported. For sure.
0: Yes. I if anyone's curious, I can tell you what um Jake's dad did for a living. Because I just looked it up. Oh. He was I a mean, doctor. He, do? he was a doctor. Okay. okay.
2: That's interesting because both of the comments uh in this book about class are leveled at Jake specifically. Um Marco has one where uh Jake is talking about um going into the mountains, and seeing what's going on in the mountains, and Marco's like, the suburban kid. Yes, the mountains yes. are huge. There's so much <laughs> of them. Um, and then, uh, later on, when they're attempting to acquire a fish morph, Cassie's like, how many times have you been fishing? And Jake is like, including this? One time. And she's like, suburban <laughs> kids. Um, the thing is that the, like, uh, Cassie and Marco, who you know are the people who make those comments, I feel like have closer relationships with their parents than... Rachel and Jake do.
0: For better or for worse.
2: Yeah, for better or for worse. So, I don't know. There's an interesting pattern to be had there.
3: Completely agree, yeah.
0: And there is also the element of race there, because Cassie and Marco are people of color, True. and Jake, Rachel, and Tobias are not. And, yeah, probably Jake and Rachel's families are, like, upper-middle class. Middle class, upper-middle class. hmm
3: yeah, I think that, you know, there's definitely like some envy from Cassie's point of view of Rachel and like her ability to be like just more affluent and more skilled at like sort of traditional girly things because she's like constantly covered in like animal dung and like because she helps her parents out with the barn and everything and Rachel's this, this, this person in her life who's like I think she, my favorite description of of Rachel which I think encapsulates her perfectly is um and actually this makes so much sense as to like the clues as to the fact that um they were living in California but Cassie describes Rachel as being able to walk through a mudslide and a tornado all in once all at once and like come out with like perfect makeup and hair. And...
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that I necessarily completely agree that Cassie felt envious of Rachel's ability to perform traditional femininity because I think that I... I, Speaking as someone who was kind of in a similar position at that age, um, I know that when I was in a similar position, I was kind of like, wow, I'm really impressed by people who can sort of conform to, like, how... Thirteen-year-olds are supposed to dress, and I wish I could do that. And then I would like put on some skinny jeans and a polo shirt, um, because I unfortunately went to private school,
1: and <laughs> it was bad.
0: Ah, uh, oh, we talked about it sometime. It was terrible. And oh um, God, it so bad. yeah, but yeah. And then I would like do that, and I would be like, "Wow, none of this fits because I hit puberty early, and I look like a clown, and I feel like a clown." And I want to put my weird goth clothes back on now, and that's kind of the same vibe that I get from Cassie—is that she's like impressed by Rachel's ability and kind of thinks, "Oh, that would be nice." And then I think there are some times where she talks about like Rachel getting her to put on a dress when she's just like, "No, actually, this sucks." Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think
3: that's yeah. a good relatable.
0: Yeah, whereas now I love to wear a good dress, and the fact that I'm wearing pants today is actually unusual for me, but when I was a teenager, I was very different.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so do we want to move on in the, the sort of the story? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, yeah, so the next sort of really big thing that happens is they go, turn into wolves, except for Tobias, obviously, and there's a lot of sort of tension there. Um, and a lot of... His, that's, when he, that's when he says... Like if he lets himself start feeling jealous... Or feeling bad for himself... For not being able to do what the others can do... Both be human... And also be other animals... Then he'll never stop. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: that it go rears its head.
1: Yeah. And then after they've done their recon mission... Two hours have passed... According to what Tobias knows, it's a full two hours, um, and he's terrified for his friends, and he runs, well, flies uh, back to them, um, and he has to watch them go through some big-time body horror as they struggle to get from wolves back to humans. Um, My
2: ancient pop culture joke for this point was Marco never gets the faces right. Um, but it's a it's it's a reference to a very very old film yeah (laughs) okay so
3: where were we
0: uh just in like when our first discussion session when i was saying that i'm really suspicious of some of the ways that animal behavior is characterized in these journals Because a lot of this is predicated on, like, really outdated, unscientific uh, research about how wolf packs work, which is probably what people thought was the correct research at the time that the animorphs were experiencing this. But you'd think that they would, like, morph into wolves and be like, oh, wow, they care a lot less about hierarchy than I thought, and they care a lot more about, like,
1: communal happiness and stuff like that. Yes, 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 yes. Alpha male is not real. Um, It's amazing
3: how throughout history we've imposed systems of patriarchy onto the psychology of animals and just been like, yeah, this is how it works.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I love what happens um, when Jake and the real wolf are fighting over um... sorry, I'm gonna find it because it's right here
0: they're fighting over some Um, kind of prey
1: yeah i've got it literally right here oh yeah i loved it when jake as a wolf and a real wolf are uh fighting over a dead rabbit um and also cassie rachel and marco are totally like backing him up like are not they're totally Wolfpack. Like, they're totally like, no, this is so important. This is the most important thing. <laughs> and then Tobias is just like, if you can't share, then nobody gets the rabbit. And just <laughs> swoops in and takes it away like a mom to two toddlers. That's so funny. Yep.
3: Also, I got to go now. So I'm just going to oh. sign
0: off. Okay, bye, Ursel. So. Bye, Ursel. So.
3: Bye. Bye. Thanks so much. I look forward to recording another discussion with y'all soon. Stay safe. Yeah, st- stay
0: safe. Bye. Stay safe. Stay bye. safe. Um. <clears throat> but yeah, I. Uh, it also reminded me a little bit that like this is the most important thing of like dogs. Um, which mm-hmm. makes sense. Wolves well, and dogs are related. But mm-hmm. I've definitely known dogs who you could just tell like, you know. I don't care if you want to take me on a walk. I don't care if you have food for me. The squirrel I'm staring at through the window is the most important thing in the whole world.
2: <laughs> the myopia of being a canine.
0: Yeah, isn't it so sweet? hmm I love dogs.
2: Dogs are good.
1: Yeah. Dogs are so good. I miss my dog. Dogs at my parents' house. Yeah, mine too. Okay, um, what's next so um oh uh oh
2: oh man okay sorry we just finished talking about chapter seven um i believe on page 17 which is the last page of chapter six uh i believe is the first mention of vegetarianism in the series
0: (laughs) oh it's the bacon thing
2: yeah uh just so that we have that on record believe it's mentioned for the first time in the series uh in book three also i guess um I guess Chapter 7 is as good a time as any to talk about this because we have a lot of them. How do we feel about the onomatopoeias in these journals? Oh, because yeah. Because one thing that I've noticed is that they all seem very consistent. Like, everybody, they, they all render the onomatopoeias in the same way. How do we feel about them?
1: Yeah, because they always, for like, when Tobias screeches, it's always like mm-hmm.
2: I just think that the way that they're rendered is very interesting and not how I would render those sounds at all. Um, also, there's just a lot of incidental ones. I think uh first page of Chapter 8 has a SWOOM, which I believe is the onomatopoeia for catching
1: a headwind in hawk form. Um, yeah, in all caps. In all caps, in italics. Um, just talking about uh, SWOOMing, um, would you all like to know how many times they use the word THERMAL in <laughs> uh, the Animorphs journal, The Encounter? Sure.
2: I can't, I can't turn our discussion notes for our class that we're taking together. I can't turn those into a drinking game. But take a sip every time they say thermal.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, would you like to guess? How many pages is it, by the way?
2: Is this book? 65.
1: Mm-hmm. 65.
2: Uh, 60, 64. Actually, not including
1: the cover. 64. Okay, uh, perfect. How many times do you think they say Thermal.
2: In this one uh yes.
1: 39
2: 23
1: Oh you're both high. Uh 15. Oh.
2: Which oh, okay.
1: is approximately one out of every four pages <laughs> has the word that's thermal. A, yeah, on that it. makes sense. <laughs> it's a that that
2: seems like a lot. Anyway, I think I have a shirt somewhere in my shirt collection that's a picture of Tobias wearing sunglasses with the word thermals and just like bold italic text underneath. <laughs>
0: That sounds amazing, You've Parker. seen that shirt, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh my god, It's just Parker. still funny.
0: <laughs> okay. I want that shirt now. Where did you get it?
2: Oh, jeez. Uh, I think of a thrift store a while ago. I don't remember.
0: man. I was hoping it was, like, official Animorphs merchandise or something.
2: That'd be pretty cool. Uh,
1: yeah, oh. so... Yes and you want to talk about Tobias's total and complete breakdown. Yes, yeah, so he has his breakdown. He uh really sadly tries to um tries to harm himself, tries to kill himself by flying very fast into glass. Um but it does not work because Marco breaks the glass in front of him. And then he spends That's a week. That's what friends are for. That's what friends are for, breaking glass. Literally and metaphorically. Yeah. Helping, helping you through your depression. Um, well, unfortunately, there is not a way for, uh, Tobias to get very much help for his depression. Um, like, he needs a therapist, but that therapist would have to have gone to bird college. That is for birds.
0: (laughs) I'm a lawyer.
2: (laughs) Which frantically, of course, you know, is accessible at this point, but back in back in the day you could
0: You could You could. I definitely have bird college.
2: Bird college for birds.
0: Anyway. Uh
2: Tobias snaps out of his funk slash his sort of his his period of going and being a hawk, which again, like there's a lot of value judgments that he attaches to that and that are placed upon that by the sort of people in his life, uh, which I feel like our approach to that has probably, you know, has has changed pretty significantly in the time that, you know, the world has become aware of, uh, you know, just like Andalites and this technology in general um, and our approach to sort of like interspecies relations and like... Um, just the sort of shame complex that he deals with is very much a product of its time, um, but the the moment at which he sort of uh, attempts to sort of reassert uh, a human identity is when he's out in the woods and he sees a horkbajir chasing a, a person, a human person. Mm, yeah,
0: um, yeah. I mean, I think that it's interesting that like compassion for others is what brings him back. Because it's his compassion for um, the person who's, like, getting chased and could die that makes him remember that he's a human and he wants to help humans.
2: Ooh. His understanding of animal compassion, I think, is also something that has been brought up to date a little bit. Like, this mm. is not a contemporary understanding of the way that animals interact with each other. Like, his whole relationship with this other hawk, I feel like is losing something in translation between animal and Nothlet, you know? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Just because he's not able to perceive compassion or sort of like an understanding of gratitude from other animals doesn't mean that that doesn't exist, as we've discovered. Um, I think it's really interesting that he's like, even in his perception of himself as an animal without emotion, without sort of like remorse for the lies that he takes as a a predator, that he's still relying upon what we now know to be human understandings of animals as kind of these unthinking, unfeeling beings, mm. which we now know is just not the case um, but he does exercise that compassion directly towards a human, and that's what sort of like grounds him in an understanding of humanity, which I mean now sort of like from a from a um a perspective significantly after the fact, we know that he's operating less on an understanding of what animals are actually like, but more on his understanding of what he believes a hog is supposed to be like. Yeah. Um, So even in, even in his sort of like long dark night of the soul, he's still coming at it from a very human standpoint. And so, you know, he never really had anything to worry about regarding his own loss of humanity. Um, It's just a little interesting sort of like cultural. um,
0: Yeah. I think, I think even his breakdown is very human because humans also dissociate and kill animals.
2: This is true. Horrifyingly. Not necessarily
0: at the same time. Sometimes at the same time, I'm sure, but also just, like, nothing he's doing is inherently hawk-like.
1: Oh, you meant separately. Okay. I mean, I'm
0: sure humans (laughs) do it at the same time as well, but, no, I just mean that, like, all of the separate elements of his breakdown are things that are present in the human psyche as well.
2: Yeah, and back when yeah. these were when these journals were recorded, like that wasn't the popular understanding. Like the popular yeah. understanding was that like you know, humans were unique in feeling emotions and in responding with uh, in in sort of like social behavior to each other, like either unique or like one of a very small number of like sort of quote unquote enlightened animals when we now know that that's just not the case. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know, it's interesting that he gets wrapped up in what his idea of what a hawk should be like rather than just, you know, how an animal do. Chapter 17, he returns to Rachel.
0: I think it's um, interesting the ways in which, and again, kind of parallel to what we were talking about, like viewing this through a queer lens, I think the ways in which Rachel fails to really be reassuring and the ways in which she doesn't quite get where Tobias is coming from That I felt like that was very parallel with a lot of like queer experiences I've had where I've like tried to, you know, explain something to like a straight person who's been like, oh, so it's like blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, it's not entirely dissimilar to blah, 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 but it's not really what you're thinking, buddy.
1: Yeah, like going back to the reassurance that he might be able to get changed back. It's not necessarily helpful with acceptance uh, of the situation that he's in currently. Yeah.
2: And we know that she doesn't believe that. Mm -hmm. We perceive through his eyes that she's effectively lying. Whether or not that is true and ends up being the case, I don't actually know. Because I haven't read all of these books! But um, but he perceives her to be lying the first time that she suggests that that might happen. Um, so yeah, she's attempting to console him as best she knows how, but he realizes that her help ultimately is not as much of use to him.
0: Which to be fair, she is a 13-year-old who is in way over her head. So it's not like yeah. she should magically be good at being a bird therapist. And yeah. I while I am hard on Rachel sometimes, I don't want to make it seem like I'm being hard on her about this cuz I think she's doing a relatively good job considering how awful the situation she was in, but I do think it's interesting that there's that disconnect where none of his friends can really totally relate to what he's going through.
2: Yeah, because none of the Nothlet advocacy and support organizations that exist now existed back then.
0: Yeah, because no one even knew, on Earth
1: at least, that you could morph. Yeah. Yeah. What a weird society. What a weird society.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, they... So the next day, they proceed with the plan. Um... I don't know how much sort of analysis there is to do there, um... I did highlight the when everybody morphs into wolves for the first time. This is just going again back to like gay experience that uh sometimes sometimes I didn't like to be there when they morphed. Um which really calls to mind like locker rooms. Yes.
0: Yes. Oh my god. Sorry. Like
1: like sudden going from being gay and not realizing it to being 13 being gay and realizing it and accepting that that's the truth suddenly not because you're attracted to your friends in the locker room but because suddenly you worry that they would think that you would be even if you're not out there's just like all this anxiety and all this like what what is this relationship supposed to be like yeah. how do i exist in this space and you know you no longer want to be with your friends like while they're changing Basically. Yeah, I
0: had a I had a really interesting variation on that happened to me in like high school where um I normally no one in my family is very body shy. No one in my family cares that much about modesty. So, I normally don't care that much about modesty and I don't care about like being naked in front of people. But when I was in high school, I, for some mysterious reason, got, like, super prudish around changing in the locker room, and it usually wasn't a big deal except for the swim unit, because... I don't know if um, Brad mentioned this, Parker, but I actually am from California, like the Animorphs. Mm -hmm. So we had a swim unit in high school and we had to get completely naked to put our swimsuits on. And I was that person who was like hiding in the corner trying to change into my swimsuit under my towel. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I didn't even know why I was doing it because I was like, this is so out of character for me. I don't know why I feel compelled to do it. And, spoiler alert, it was a weird combination of queer feelings and disability feelings. Mm-hmm.
2: I think there's also potentially a, a reading to be had in terms of uh, Tobias viewing the other's ability to morph as an appropriation of his experience. Um, as being like, oh, this is something that they can step into for a little while and enjoy and then sort of take off and like leave on the coat rack when they get home. Um, whereas it is my life. Um
0: stop appropriating hawk culture. You just don't understand.
1: <laughs> well,
2: I mean, yeah, it's not that's not entirely applicable in like this situation. But yeah,
1: but yeah, no, I know what you mean. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. So everybody almost dies a lot of times. Again. Again. I feel like
0: um this is more of a uh, metatextual thing than talking about the action I, oh, yeah, I don't know if yeah. metatextual is the right word there, but I feel like whether it's because their kids with limiting limited writing skills or because they were traumatized or whatever, the action scenes feel to me like they're often the least interesting part of these journals. I mean, okay, this one's fun because Tobias gets a gun. Um, Tobias does get a gun! Oh my god. And so that was hilarious. What's more
1: dangerous with a hawk than a hawk? A hawk
2: with a gun! <laughs> um... I love how in uh, in this in this encounter, and also uh, in chapter one when he opens up the uh, the combination lock. I love how in these two moments, Tobias utterly destroys what I understand to be the contemporary science of animal intelligence, a large part of which focused around tool use. Mm, it's yeah. just like I've got a gun now. It's like <laughs> tool use as like an indicator of animal intelligence is entirely out the window because I'm a bird and I have a firearm. <laughs> It's just like, there we go. That That is no longer relevant now. You have to come up with something else. So, yeah, uh, Tobias flies up high, does a cool little bit of dogfighting with a
1: helicopter. <laughs> um, this is while the, the other kids are inside and fish. And I yeah. completely, pre- as I was reading this, I completely predicted the problem they were going to have, which is what if the water completely fills up the tanker and you can't yeah. turn back from fish because there's no air. There's no oxygen. This was such a bad plan. I think there was a little bit of oxygen. They didn't know that, though.
2: They definitely didn't know that. Um, I think they had enough uh, like, to sort of like keep them alive for a sec because they do turn back into humans while they're in the tank, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, hey, quick question. Where did all of the Yerks... Um, where did the Yerks get a cache of automatic weapons cops colonialism but like no cuz i i think the implication is that the uh the the, the phony park rangers the park ranger controllers oh. have like like fully automatic rifles which are like were like very much illegal oh yeah zone but it doesn't seem like they're using like yerk technology or like extraterrestrial technology in general it seems like they're just using sort of what back at the time were contemporary slug throwers um, oh, that's a oh, that's a terrible pun! I didn't realize that that was a pun. <laughs> oh um, my
1: god!
2: <laughs> man, that would have really changed the Irk's entire strategy if they'd been able to implement something like that. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, are three shows up.
1: Uh... Yeah, they really were very short-sighted. Like when they're arguing about whether to go through with the plan, they're like, "We could all die," and Jake's like. Yeah, but we might not get another ch- we might not get another chance to do this and then it'll all be over once we we get it to uncloak. Um and I'm just like, yeah, but it'll also all be over if you all die.
2: And that yeah. seems
1: like way too much of a gamble, but they they were kids with way too much responsibility and not great decision-making skills.
2: <laughs> I feel like to their credit, they're like what, like 13 in this? Yeah. I feel like, to their credit, they exhibit some pretty sound tactical choices. Like, not every tactical choice they make is a good one, but, like, a lot of their tactical choices are really good. Their strategic choices, though, leave some things to be desired, slash, could have resulted in a lot better outcome if they'd really had somebody with a strategy sort of mind. Um, Tobias gives him his identity up to Visor 3 by landing directly on the trucker ship. Uh, and thereby, again, exhibiting like a, in as much as you're giving yourself up, like I think that was pretty much known at that point. But landing directly on the trucker ship, like great way to make sure that you don't get shot to death by dragon yeah. beams right away. Yeah,
1: that was very smart.
2: Like they're they're all pretty good at tactical stuff. Like they're all they're all pretty good at those moment to moment choices. Um, it's that moment where they sort of think that they're going to need to uh they're going to need to rely on Tobias to sort of destroy the ship with them on it uh and kill them that's the moment where it starts to be like ooh yeah yeah i feel like this is as close as they've gotten to a victory though
0: yeah cuz they do they do crush
2: the ship in the prior two books like i mean definitely in 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 the invasion, like, that's just a failure. They just, like, they just lose at the end of that one. Uh, they blow their element of surprise, um... They save they, one person. They save one person, but they were hoping for so, so much more. That's, yeah. That's like, a pyrrhic victory at very best, I think, especially considering that Tobias becomes an offload at that time. Um... Like, they barely escape with their hides at, uh, the end of Volume 2, but, like, here, yeah... They take down a York tanker ship
1: With a hawk With a gun
2: With a bird
1: a- Allegedly they do I have some suspicions Allegedly.
2: About the book There's an onomatopoeia for the dracon beam
0: <laughs> What is it?
2: What's the onomatopoeia?
0: Yeah, I already went past it
2: S-S-S-E-E-E-E com.
0: Yeah I want to talk about my beef with this journal, which is that whenever else they discuss morphing, it seems like it takes a few minutes, but somehow everyone who falls out of the water supply in the ship is able to morph in the, like, three seconds or whatever before they hit the ground.
2: This was also a thing that I noticed.
0: Yeah, thank you, Parker. There is an inconsistency here. I think that they are covering something up. I don't know what. Well, I have some theories as to what. I think maybe they might have had some allies a little earlier than they officially did in the timeline of the journals, or something. But either they're exaggerating how long it takes to morph, or it does always take a long time and something happened when they fell out of the ship. If they fell out of the ship, if that whole part's not made up, that accounts for the fact that they would not have had enough time to
1: morph. Yeah, that was also a very, very, uh, does ex machina, like, there just happened to be a- Wait, did, did there just happen to be a hole in the tanker, or did he shoot a hole in the tanker? How did they get out of the tanker? He,
0: he shot something on the ship, which made the ship go out of control and blow partially up, and it- the ship hit the helicopter. The helicopter fell- and some of the Yerk ships tried to avoid the helicopter, and one of the bug fighters crunched into the ship, and that opened a big hole, including the water, and that's where the Animorphs fell out from. I think, it's a little confusingly written, but I think that's how it went down.
2: All of this leads up to uh, Volume 3, the encounter, being the sort of, like, kicking off point for the uh jake marco cassie and rachel are dead conspiracy theory um what plagued yeah you didn't know about that there's a conspiracy (laughs) theory that tobias is the only surviving animorph,
0: or was the the only surviving
2: yeah is that tobias is the only animorph who uh is original, and that all of the others were somehow, like, injected into the situation by, like, there's, like, there's a lot of crazy, crazy theories that there's, like, encoded messages in the dr- journals and stuff like that, but uh, I have not been able to find anything to substantiate it.
0: Yeah, I I think it's a fun, I think it's a fun theory to think about. I don't think it's probably true, but yes, some people do believe that, um, well, some of this gets into stuff that you haven't read yet, Brad, um, but some people do believe that when the Animorphs met a certain ally who they are going to meet in a couple of journals, that actually the only one who met that ally was Tobias, and that then that ally was able to call in further allies who became the Animorphs. And then later, when people became more aware of the Animorphs and they needed to be sort of marketed and seen as you know like human kids just like you and me these cover identities were constructed or replaced um for those allies Mm. uh depending on what you believe either that they stepped into the roles of the existing animorphs who died in this journal or potentially at other points that people come up with or that they were just completely created fictional identities
2: um I want to talk about the last words that are communicated between Tobias and another member of the team before they all fall out of the tank. I want to talk about this final exchange. This can't be happening, I cried. This can't be happening. I guess Marco was right all along, Rachel said sadly. I guess it always was insane to think we could fight the Yerks. Rachel, I never told you. You didn't have to, Tobias, she
1: said. I knew. Goodbye. What are they talking about? It's I love you, I know. But like I mean, yeah,
2: I guess, but like I feel like there's more there. I feel like that, that's also a thing that the uh that the everyone's dead except Tobias crowd believes is like a sort of indicator that there's something else going on. Um anyway, uh the ship gets torn open. The other animorphs fall out and somehow manage to morph before they hit the ground. The ship hits the ground and explodes, and Tobias' red-tailed hawk friend, who he rescued at the beginning of the book, is shot and killed by a stray dracon beam. Uh, Chapter 27, which on my version is less than a page, as Tobias returning to Rachel uh Rachel offering the help of the squad to return to the woods find the hawk and give her a proper burial uh and Tobias understanding that that is not the way of
0: the way of the hawk
2: um yeah no it's not the way of of nature um he's sort of it's it's a moment where uh i think the the narr- like the idea narratively is that he's come to terms with a uh a sort of amalgam or truce between the human side of him and the hawk side of him, and he recognizes um the sort of uh the needs of both of these things and the sort of like frivolity and possible danger of uh confusing one for the other um and hes sort of like i honestly think that the last line of this book is beautiful be happy for me and for all who fly free
0: it does rhyme
2: it's a gorgeous line i'm've been i don't know. I've I've got a I've got a friend who's got that line tattooed on them. It's very beautiful.
0: Oh wow! Cool. Um, <sighs> wow.
2: So when's the account of Tobias?
0: Yeah.
1: Well, the first.
2: The the first yeah the yeah. first account.
1: Yeah, that was that was really great. I think we've got a lot of good stuff for Professor Leon. Hope so.
0: Okay. Um. Well, I'll virtually see you next time when we have our next discussion um we're gonna read the fourth journal
2: yeah what's the fourth one called wait a minute hold up i'm opening it
0: uh the message
2: the message oh this is cassie this is exciting
1: i want to know what's going on in cassie's head yeah me too a
0: lot of moral and ethical dilemmas if i remember correctly i
2: love moral and ethical dilemmas
1: i think
0: you will like cassie (laughs) i think cassie is often the one who feels most conflicted about things.
1: Nice. Amazing. Okay. We'll see you all next Girl. week. Stay safe. Bye. Stay safe. Bye bye. to Noelle Micharelli for the use of their songs Comic Book Girl, off the EP Field Notes from Another Place, and Complicated Spoon. You can find more of Noel's music at noelmicarelli.bandcamp.com. The Morph Report is hosted by Marina Malucci, Hamlet Cooper, and Blythe. You can follow us on Twitter at Morph Report. If you have a question for the Potomorphs, tweet at us or send us an email and we'll answer it on the show. Our email is themorphreport at gmail.com Thank you for listening. Stay safe.